as we open up the Word of God and study it. And Lord, some of these things are uh, some very heavy material that we'll go through, so uh, Lord, I pray that you give us understanding and wisdom as we deal with it. And then, Lord, we want to pray for all the youth groups going on right now, the Awana, as well as the uh, Rooted Teens Youth Group. Pray that you bless the leadership. And, uh, Father, I pray that you keep uh, all the kids and teens safe as they have their activities, as well as the time spent around the Word of God. So, Lord, do in their hearts what needs to be done. And, Lord, you, of course, know that better than anyone. So, Lord, we commit this time to you. Pray that you, again, will give us a good time as we open up the Scriptures and study them tonight. And we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, those watching on the Internet, welcome to Union Grove Baptist Church. And uh, tonight we're going to be finishing up Acts chapter 2. This will be our third lesson in Acts 2. And uh, because there is so much material specifically covering the beginning of the church age, what's taking place, the signs, miracles, and wonders that were taking place, why did that happen, and uh, some of the changes that have happened since they originally were instituted. So, we, as we like to say, we like to peel God's prophetic word, or God's word in this case, one passage at a time, which is exactly what we're going to do. So, let's just spend, uh, how many of you listen to Crosstalk today? Oh, look at that. Wow, lots. All right, so uh, we talked a little bit about this. Uh, was with Jim Schneider on Crosstalk. I know they do repeats too, and we, we always put the link up after I'm on his program. Uh, but boy, we talked about a lot of things happening in Israel. And uh, this is an interesting one because the Jewish people, again, uh, think about this. The Jewish people that are in Israel, they're not, and there are some Christians, but the majority are either don't really care about religion or they're Orthodox Jews. Well, the Orthodox Jewish community just received, if you, and those of you that listen to Crosstalk already know this or other news sources, five red heifers showed up from Texas. Uh, they brought them into Tel Aviv, and uh, now uh, they're under priestly care, if you will. Uh, the red heifer basically is used for one purpose, which is to purify uh, the priesthood, purify the temple, and so forth, which isn't built yet, but they need these red heifers to basically cause purification to take place uh, out of Numbers 28. So it's, it's, a, it's a huge thing. Tony? Are they rare? They're extremely rare, especially ones, I mean, here's the issue. The entire time, um, and I'm not sure what, if it just included the second temple period or the first and second temple, uh, there's only been like nine red heifers that have been taken and, and basically they, they sacrifice them, they burn them up, and they take the ashes, and that's what's used for purification purposes. So they're looking really for only the tenth red heifer, uh, to my understanding, based on what I read through uh, the Jewish media so it, it is rare now are there a lot of red heifers out there yeah there are a lot of red heifers but here's the issue they got to be perfect they have to be without blemish they have to have their hair has to be red now if you heard the radio the last time uh, they had a red heifer the priests were out there and they they literally i mean it's painstaking going through every single little hair to make sure it's red and uh the, the priest came up with well if it has more than five different colored hairs, then uh, 
they're axed out. So I'm, I'm not sure where the number five came from. I think it's uh, from uh, uh, the Torah, not the Torah, the uh, extra biblical writings, the Mishnah and the Talmud. But anyway, uh, yeah, bossy up there has to be basically perfect in order to fit Jewish law. Now, let's make it real clear. The third temple is that, and I use the word and loosely, is the third temple a godly temple? The answer is no, it's not. Okay? What happened, the first temple, of course, was sanctioned by God himself. Uh, of course, Solomon built it. It was destroyed in 586, as uh, those of you that have been sticking around here for multiple weeks know, in 586, the Babylonians destroyed it. Second temple, which was sanctioned by God, he wanted it to be built, uh, was built, of course, by the Jewish people, was instituted in 515 B.C., but the Jewish people again rebelled against God, therefore the Romans knocked it down in AD 70 and dispersed the Jewish people. All right, so God mandates that there must be a third temple. However, by the way, uh, um, let's go back to the second one for a quick minute. Did the Shekinah glory of God dwell in the first temple? Absolutely, okay? Did the Shekinah glory of God ever enter the second temple? The answer is no, all right? So we're good on that. Will the Shekinah glory of God enter the third temple, which has yet to be built? No, because it technically is a religious Jewish temple, but it's not sanctioned by God, even though he said it has to be built, all right? So uh, I've given a litany of verses on why that or the third temple has to be built. Daniel 9.27 talks about it. Um, Matthew 24.15 talks about it in reference to the abomination of desolation that happens halfway through the tribulation when the Antichrist sets up his false image in the temple. Well, the temple doesn't exist today, so it has to be built yet. Uh, Revelation 11, 1 and 2 actually says uh, the Apostle John looked at the temple, even though it's uh, uh, from a prophetic standpoint, and he measured it. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, 4 talks about uh, the temple, and again, in the context of the abomination of desolation having to take place. So again, the Jewish people, Orthodox Jews, can't wait to get that third temple up there. Now again, there's two main organizations. I talked about them this afternoon just slightly, but uh, boy, if you want to, and they really just updated their website. It's really good. They've got some new things on there, but the templeinstitute.org, templeinstitute.org is really worth a, a look if you're, if you're interested in uh, what's taking place in Israel. Again, it's an Orthodox Jewish individual. It has nothing to do with Christianity. Uh, the ruler, or the ruler, uh, the head of it is a, a rabbi named Hyam Richman. And if uh, most of you know who Jimmy DeYoung is, senior, he had interviewed Hyam many a times on his programs, basically getting the Jewish take on things. So Hyam Richman, still a great guy, unfortunately unsaved. He uh, hasn't put his faith and trust in Christ, but his website is phenomenal because it's all about getting that third temple built. Uh, the other one is uh, um, the Temple Mount Faithful. The Temple Mount Faithful, uh, Gershom Solomon, uh, was the individual that got that going. So those two organizations are doing everything possible to get that third temple ready. And the Red Heifer being there is uh, just one more potential 
uh, for that to happen. All right, so that's all prophetic. That's not why we're here tonight, but I just wanted to throw it out there. Some of you may or may not have heard about it. Uh, but anyway, I'm going to get rid of my picture up here, and let's get into Acts chapter 2. All right, uh, we're going to do a little, because I went through it so fast last week, I'm going to slow it down, and actually the highlight of tonight is we're going to talk about, and I'm going to show you some pictures from Israel, we're going to go through some scriptures that talk about the concept of washings, poetic pause, and baptism, all right? I'm going to take you through what baptism is and is not, which is very important because Acts chapter 2 discusses this issue, and it actually causes some confusion based on the text. So I'm going to take you through the entire Old Testament, through the New Testament. We're going to talk about what baptism basically started as, and that's why I use the word washings, and I could also use the word cleansings. But we'll get to that in a few minutes after we get started. All right, Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel. Who? Men of Israel. All right, remember what context we're in again. Acts chapter 1 was the, was the ascension of Jesus Christ. From what place? From Jerusalem on what uh, specific place? Mount of Olives. All right, Acts chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Jesus is, ascends up to heaven. The angels appear to the disciples and say, why are you, why are you gazing up into heaven? Get busy and get out there and spread the gospel, basically. And uh, the Bible says that the disciples went to what left the Mount of Olives in verse 11 and head back into Jerusalem. So we know that's where Jesus ascended from. Why is that important? Because that same passage says it's the same place that Jesus will, what? Return. Not at the rapture, but at the second coming that Jesus has to touch down on the Mount of Olives. Also talked about in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3 and 4, when Christ will return to the Mount of Olives. So it was prophesied over 500 years before Jesus ascended, and then it was made clear again in Acts chapter 1 that that's exactly where Christ will return at his second coming. All right, so we're, we're talking now to the Jewish people in Jerusalem, and they're getting instructions and things that are going to be taking place. And again, who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, all right? Men of Israel, okay, we're talking to Jewish people here. Again, I made this statement multiple times. It's very important that we understand contextually what people are being talked to and why they're being talked to. We're now dealing with, and and if you go to Acts 1.8, it gives you the exact progression that the gospel is going to take. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to spread to what place next? Judea, which is the region that actually is uh, surrounds Jerusalem. The next place is Samaria, which of course is up to the north. We have the Judean region, the Samaritan uh, region, and then to where? Uttermost parts of the world. In other words, start branching out, uh, hit uh, Galilee, get out to the known world, and get busy. But that we're going to see in where we're at right now. We're still dealing with Jerusalem right now. We're not branching out yet. It's going to branch out, but that's going to come a little bit later in uh, the book of Acts. All right, men of Israel, 
hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by uh, miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. All right? We briefly talked about that. I'm not going to belabor this because it's probably some of the most well-known scripture in the Gospels that uh, uh, Jesus did perform a massive amount of miracles. And why did he do that? Well, he had to uh, basically authenticate who he was. Miracles, signs are to get people's attention. And again, when Christ did the miracles, the signs, the wondrous things that he did, obviously he got people's attention. Verse 23, him or Jesus being delivered by the what? Determined purpose. Very important. So we're looking at this. What was the determined purpose of God? Well, it was certainly that Jesus Christ, God's son, would come to this earth to do what? Give his life, to sacrifice his life. To do what? To pay for the sins of the people. So he put down some verses there. You're familiar with most of them. Uh, I'm going to turn to Matthew 1 in just a second here, but uh, Isaiah 9, 6, that's the Christmas story. For unto us a son is born, unto us a son is given. All right, and then it switches gears and goes into a prophetic piece. Uh, Isaiah 53, the entire chapter, it's a wonderful chapter, looks to uh, the suffering Savior, uh, speaks totally about Christ. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1 for a minute. You're gonna, I'm going to make you use your Bibles a little more today than normal. Usually I put everything on the screen, but not today. Uh, Malachi, that's close. One more book. All right, Matthew chapter 1. If I can find it here. There it is. How can you not find Matthew, right? Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, very important, had to be what? Virgin born, Isaiah 7.14. She, Mary, was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to put her away, lost my spot here, a uh, public example was minded to put her away secretly. In other words, Joseph was upset. He didn't understand uh, about what, why, how Christ came virgin born. So he's basically ready to put her away, thinking that she was unfaithful to him. Verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the, the key verse. And she shall bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus and here's the prophecy, for he will save his people from their sins. So Acts basically said uh, it's a determined purpose. Isaiah spoke about it uh, before Christ was born. Joseph is informed by the angel, listen, here's why Jesus is here. He has come to do what? To save his people from their sins. Now, by the way, we haven't talked about it, but uh, Sunday morning was a great uh, morning. Uh, Mike, Michael McCrory was here. If uh, you happen to miss last Sunday morning, place was packed out. And uh, Micah gave a, a good presentation of the gospel. Three folks came uh, forward to trust Christ. Uh, then uh, right after lunch, there's another person that uh, came into my office and uh, trusted Christ there. And actually this Sunday, uh, that person will be baptized. So I'm very excited about that. So we got four adults getting baptized. The, the three that came forward are not getting baptized uh, yet. I trust that'll happen. But uh, 
We have four adults getting baptized, a couple are in the room right now, and a couple of young people will be getting baptized. So it's going to be another wonderful, wonderful Sunday of hearing testimonies and rejoicing in what God has done in their life. But uh, here's the issue. Uh, God, uh, uh, the, he, Jesus did signs, miracle, miracles, wonders, did, but he came here what? By the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. In other words, the scriptures attest to the fact that Christ would come to the world to give his life for us. Now he says, listen, Jewish folks, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. All right, so here's where a lot of the issues come with anti-Semitism today. Uh, when we think about the concept of who literally killed Jesus. Now, in this passage, the people that he's talking to are being pointed out as definitely being involved in the death or the crucifixion of Christ. However, who actually physically put Jesus on that cross? It was the Romans, all right? So the Romans were definitely involved. Were the Jewish people involved? They were. Uh, the Romans were involved. Who else was involved? Who else was involved? Look in the mirror. We were involved. You say, well, wait a minute, I wasn't physically there. You're correct, you were not physically there. Uh, I wasn't there condemning Jesus. You're right, you, didn't, you weren't there condemning Jesus. But why did Jesus go to the cross? Uh, pay for my sins and yours. That's, what, that's of course, why he went. So uh, um, he's getting on the Jewish people. He's basically trying to get their attention here. He's like, hey, you folks, uh, it's because of you, because of your screaming and yelling at Pilate to crucify him, uh, you definitely took part in his crucifixion. But why is he doing this? He's trying to get their attention, which, of course, he does. Verse 23, him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose, did what? Verse 24, what happened after the crucifixion? God raised him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. All right, so we have Jesus Christ, God's Son, willingly goes to the cross. Could anyone take Christ's life from him? Absolutely not. He goes to the cross. He willingly gives his life to pay for the sins of mankind. And something miraculous takes place, of course, that God raises him up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Uh, very important part, of course, of our Christian faith. Now we're going to get to, uh, to another prophecy that David gave back in the Old Testament. For David says, King David concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Again, uh, Psalm chapter 16, verse 8, speaks to this. Pop this up here a second. All right, and what does King David say, the psalmist? Now remember, about when did this have to be written? Did you say about 1000 B.C.? I'd say you're right, thank you. And uh, that's, uh, by the way, the easiest, it's kind of easy to remember because when was that first temple built? And, and you, I mean, the round number is about 1000 B.C., it's really 960 B.C., but if you keep that in mind, it's like, okay, Solomon's son built the temple in 960 B.C., or rough numbers, about 1,000 B.C., well, who was is, who is Solomon's dad? It was David. So 
that's kind of the way I keep that in the back of my mind. May work for you, may not. All right, so what does King David say? He says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. Now, here we go. For you, this is the prophecy. This is basically David recording the words that are going to speak about the Father in Christ. You, basically, Heavenly Father, will not leave my soul in Sheol. Now, uh, who's got a King James Version with him? All right, what's the word for Sheol there? Hell, okay? So, uh, uh, in the King James Version, there's two different words that, uh, uh, there are actually more than two, but uh, that are translated hell in the King James Version. And uh, actually, this particular word in the Hebrew is Sheol. There's another Greek word called Hades. When we're talking about Sheol or Hades, we're talking about the grave, right? This isn't the place of punishment. It's the place where basically, uh, uh, I guess we'll just call it the souls are kept until the resurrection time. So he says, for you, Father, will not leave my soul in the grave or in Sheol, nor will you, Father, allow your Holy One, speaking of Jesus, to see corruption. All right, how long was Jesus in the grave? Three days. Did his body decay and deteriorate and then buried? No. no, obviously. we. I mean, that's again, that's a key part of our Christian faith is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. His body didn't have time to see corruption. Verse 11, you, basically the Father, will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures ever, forevermore. All right, so what's the point here? Uh, we go back to Acts chapter 2, for David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. He's talking about uh, the resurrection of Christ, basically, from uh, the book of Psalms and the Father who resurrected him. By the way, how did Christ get resurrected? Who did it? It was the Father, all right? And that's exactly what it's saying. All right, uh, we're going to push through this and then we're going to get into in the next couple of verses the the piece I really want to spend some time on all right so therefore my heart rejoiced my tongue was glad moreover my flesh also will rest in hope here it is again for you will not leave my soul in what Hades it's the same the same concept the grave but it's from the Greek language so instead of translating it hell the word Hades, which is an appropriate translation in the English, was used. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Did we just see that somewhere, by the way? Uh, Psalm what? Psalm 16, right there. All right. <laughs> All right. For you, uh, uh, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren... Let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. Mm. Okay, we briefly touched on that. Um, I think we should go to it. We got time. Uh, take your Bibles. Let's go to 2 Samuel 7. Yep, that'll do it. We're going
going to look at what's known as the Davidic covenant. Again, there's three unconditional covenant, or I'm sorry, four unconditional covenants that are given to the Jewish people. Did I say the Jewish people? I said the Jewish people. Okay, I just want to make it real clear for those watching. The big issue that we have in Christianity today is the division among is God done with Israel or does Israel have a future? Well, according to Scripture, Israel has a huge future. And 2 Samuel 7 in Acts chapter 2, verse 30 basically point this out. All right, we're going to go to the Davidic covenant. So again, 2 Samuel chapter 7, start at verse 10. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Now, what does that sound like they're going to get? What are they going to get? A home. All right, What's, where's their home? It's Israel. All right, that's an easy one. I mean, it's, it's always Israel. It's, it's the holy land that God specifically said he'd give to the Jewish people. Uh, Genesis 15, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 5, talks about God has a very specific piece of property for them. Now, again, if you uh, heard crosstalk today, I referenced it a bit out of Genesis 15. How, what percentage, see how well you listen, what percentage of the land that God promised the Jewish people in Genesis 15 do they have today? Say what? 10%. That's it which means there's a massive amount of land around them, 90% of the land that God promised them, they don't even have yet. So uh, uh, basically to say that, well, everything promised to the Jews is now for the church, it just doesn't match up. Uh, Jim Schneider brought up the fact today that uh, uh, the population in Israel is about 9.5 million people, of which about 7.5 million are Jewish people. According to Ezekiel 37, the Jews would return to Israel well, it's pretty hard to deny that that's exactly what's happening. It's not the church-age saints going to Israel. It's the Jewish people that God said would go there. That's exactly what's happening. So those that uh, uh, practice, if you will, uh, supersessionism, believing that the church superseded the Jewish people, replacements theology, saying that the church replaced the Jewish people, uh, better not go to Israel and figure out that God's fulfilling his prophetic word according to Ezekiel 37, because that's exactly what he's doing. All right, so it's an amazing thing. Uh, all right, so what does he say? Verse 10, uh, I'm going to give you a land. Let's see, where are we at here? There we go. Uh, Move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Verse 11, 2 Samuel 7. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and it caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. What's the house? It's the temple, all right? When your days are fulfilled, David... Oh, wait, has the first temple been built yet? How do we know it's not been built yet? Because did God allow David to build the first temple? Who built the first temple? Solomon, his son, all right? Uh, plus, he's talking to David right here. Okay, so verse 12, when your days, David, are fulfilled, in other words, when you die and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, your descendants, who will come from your what? your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Mm. He shall build a house. Okay, so we are already said that multiple times. Who built, who built the house? 
the Solomon did, right? The temple, the house for, for God. Uh, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. All right, so this is the Davidic covenant where God is promising David a future descendant that not only will build the temple, which was Solomon, but somebody who's going to take that throne for how long? Forever. Acts chapter uh, 2. Uh, there we go, verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you, the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit or the seed of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He's basically describing that it's not said that way in Second Samuel 7, but that's exactly the end game here. Christ would indeed sit on the throne. Why? Because God promised it to David in the Davidic covenant, and that's exactly what takes place here. All right, so these covenants are extremely important. Um, I can't believe you're making me do this. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. For those watching on the Internet, nobody's making me do anything. It's my nice way of saying I'm going to rabbit trail. Jeremiah 31, 31 is the new covenant. And we're not talking about what's being talked about in 1 Corinthians, a communion and so forth. We're talking about a, a, which is tied into this, but go to Jeremiah 31, 31, the new covenant. I want you, and, and I've talked about this before, but we still have, we always have new folks, so uh, I'm going to ask you a real nasty question. Now, we're all, we're all aware of the Holocaust, which took place. Six, or six million Jewish people were murdered, taken out, and uh, Hitler tried to destroy uh, the Jewish people. And, and I'll just say this, I got this from Jimmy DeYoung because I really don't want credit for it, but it's good. Uh, Jimmy DeYoung had said, listen, uh, Hitler really messed up. He's like, he, he didn't follow the biblical way to exterminate the Jewish people because God tells you exactly how to exterminate the Jewish people in the Bible. And uh, he said, okay, let's take a look at it. And he'd go to uh, Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31. And here's how to rid the earth, if you will, which, of course, I, d I don't want to. But if somebody did want to rid the world of the Jewish people, God gives the formula as to how to do that. Behold, Jeremiah 31, 31, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of who? Israel and with the house of Judah. Right? Israel being the northern ten, or you can pull all twelve into it, Judah being the southern two tribes of Israel. And he says, uh, 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 not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. What covenant was that? The, there it is, who said it? The Mosaic Law. Okay, that was the, the Old Testament covenant, uh, which by the way was conditional, unlike the New Covenant my covenant which they broke, speaking of the Mosaic law, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Verse 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will. Now this is talking about the millennial kingdom coming up, which of course has not started yet. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Why? Where's Jesus during the millennial kingdom? It's right here on the earth. Okay, again, how does he get here? Oh, let's go back to Acts chapter 1, verse 11. 
Mount of Olives is where he descends. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, comes right back in the Mount of Olives. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 to 7, he sets up his 1,000-year kingdom. Do you know the Lord? For they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. All right, now here comes the formula as to how to get rid of the Jewish people. Thus says the Lord, verse 35, who gives the sun for light by day, the ordinances of the moon uh, and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Here it is. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. God's saying, listen, if you could extinguish the sun, the moon, and the stars, if you have that kind of power, if you're able to do something like that, then you might be able to destroy my people. Verse, What's he doing here, folks? We call that hyperbole. He's making a point. They can't do it. They'll never do it. it. His people will not be destroyed, the Jewish people. Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if heaven can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. What's he saying? Listen, get out your tape measure. And we have folks that are in the construction business. Uh, get out your tape measure. Uh, see if you can measure everything. See if the foundations of the earth searched out beneath. Listen, if you can measure the... Man, new stuff is coming out every single day with all the brand new super high-powered telescopes and things and the massiveness of the universe. I mean, it, it's beyond my comprehension uh, looking at these things uh, or hearing about them even. And God says, listen, if you can destroy the universe, if you can do all these things, yeah, then my Jewish people will go away. Is that ever going to happen? No, and that's what he's saying. Replacement theology, supersessionist theology is all allegorizing and spiritualizing the scriptures, taking away God's literal word, which of course is something we should never do. All right, all that was free. Now let's get down to what I wanted to talk about. All right, verse 31. He foreseeing, Acts chapter 2, 31, he foreseeing that spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Haiti or in the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he powered out that which you now see and hear. Wait a second. We have to go back to the beginning part of Acts chapter 2. What was taking place? All the disciples, if you will, all the believers, where are they? They're gathered together. And what takes place? Remember when Jesus said, listen, Stay in Jerusalem. Stay together. Something miraculous is going to happen. What was that miraculous thing? Who came down upon them? Holy Spirit. And they began to what? Speak in? Eh, I don't like that word, tongues. They began to speak in what? Hey, yeah. Okay, the word tongues is there, but it's actually languages. It defines it. Why did that take place? Because there are people from all over the known world. At what? The Feast of Pentecost, meaning all the Jewish people people, all the males, had to be there because of what? It was one of the three pilgrim feasts that mandated the Jewish males had to be there. All right. Therefore, having been exalted, verse 33, to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. And they're literally living it. It's an amazing thing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. When do you think he's going to make his enemies his footstool? 
at his second coming. I 100% agree uh, is, is exactly when. Uh, when. When is uh, Jesus Christ going to rule as the King of kings and the Lord of lords? At what? And in his millennium, at his second coming, he's going to set up that kingdom. And he's going to rule it with a rod of what? Iron. No messing around. I mean, uh, 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 and by the way, and, and here's, I get a variety of answers usually to this question, but there actually is one correct answer. Will there be people who, who will reject Christ during the millennium? Yes. Absolutely. Good. That was almost unanimous, I think. Uh, uh, they will. Will people be born during the millennium? Yes. Absolutely. Will people get saved during the millennium? Yes. yes. All right, so everything is yes. People will, now, only those that are the righteous enter into the millennial kingdom, but those righteous people in human bodies. By the way, here's where the confusion comes. All right, as the church, what's the next major event for us on God's prophetic calendar? The what? Rapture. We go up to heaven in what kind of bodies? Get a new body. All right, this thing, this doesn't work up there. It doesn't work down here either. So <laughs> we're getting rid of these bodies. How do we know that? First Corinthians 15, 50 to 54. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. What? We're going to be given those new bodies immediately at, when the rapture occurs. We're up in heaven. We have glorified bodies. Where are you and me going to be during the millennial kingdom? Where are we going to be during the 1,000-year millennial kingdom? Okay, apparently we need to go over that one. Where are we going to be during the seven-year tribulation, which is the next event after the rapture? We're going to be up in heaven. Who comes back to this earth at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 21? Who comes back? Jesus and who else? All his saints riding on? There you go. You got it. All right. That's Revelation 19, 11 to 21. We come back with Jesus. He hits the Mount of Olives. He goes out uh, to Petra. He, first he goes to Bozra. And then we believe he's going to go to Petra where the Jewish people are. He's going to go to the Battle of Armageddon, basically, wipe out all those that offend him. He's going to build the fourth temple, Zechariah 6, 12, and 13, and he will set up his millennial kingdom at that time, Revelation 21 to 7 and a million other passages. All right, so that's what's coming. All right, so when is he going to make his enemies his footstool? Bam, when he comes back at the battle of Armageddon, his enemies will be his footstool. Now, here's the, here's uh, not meant to be a trick question, but it kind of is. All right, so when uh, Matthew chapter 25 tells us basically, it gives us parables about who enters into the kingdom. Does anything that's offensive enter into God's millennial kingdom? No. Will things that are offensive to Christ pop up during the millennial kingdom? Yes, because again, now me and you will have spiritual bodies. Will we be able to have children at that point? Nope, we're done. I mean, once we're, we're out of here, we're done. However, those people, Matthew 25, that enter into the millennial kingdom, i.e., uh, the Jewish, the one-third of the Jewish people that have been preserved, underground folks that somehow managed to live through the tribulation uh, period, those people will be ushered into the millennium in what kind of bodies? Physical. I mean, just normal, everyday bodies. They, they get granted uh, access. Those people will have children. Now, we've gone through this before, but those people that are born during the millennial kingdom, do they have a free will? Yes. 
Can they choose to accept or reject Christ? Absolutely. How do we know that? Because at the end of the millennial kingdom, when Jesus Christ is literally sitting on the throne, there's going to be a massive amount of people that have rejected him. How do we know that? Um, we got a second. Go to Revelation chapter 20, and it tells us exactly what happens. And then we'll get back to Acts here. I wish you wouldn't make me rabbit trail. But uh, Revelation chapter 20, of course, verses 1 to 7 talks about the millennial kingdom. And uh, let's go to verse uh, 8. Verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. So where's Satan during the thousand-year kingdom? He's locked up. So when people say it's Satan's fault that people are unsaved, where's Satan during this thousand-year period? He's locked up. Don't always blame Satan. We also have a free will, and we can choose on our own to do wrong. It's not always Satan's fault, okay? And by the way, is Satan omnipresent? In other words, is Satan everywhere? Uh-uh. Who is omnipresent? God and God alone, all right? Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations, which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. During that thousand-year period, so many people will be born, and God says, listen, there's going to be a massive amount of people that are absolutely going to reject Christ, which just seems crazy and insane, even though he's there. Dave? Yeah, it doesn't say the demons are locked up, so it only tells us Satan is. So will the demonic world still have access? Yes, um, and that's a good point. All right, so they'll go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners. Okay, let's go to verse 9. Then they went on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints. In other words, Satan goes out. He gathers up all the detractors. Where do they go? Well, where are all the saints going to be gathered at? Jerusalem, right? That'll be the, the headquarters for Christ. Uh, the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Pretty obvious what that is. Beloved city is what? Jerusalem. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Then this is the end of the old Satan devil. The devil who would deceive them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, who's the beast? Who's the beast? Antichrist and the false prophet. Okay, so what's the satanic trinity? The false tr satanic trinity. Who mimics God the Father? Satan, who mimics God the Son? Antichrist, who mimics the, uh, the Holy Spirit? False prophet. All right, so the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Done. All right? So that's how that's all going to take place. So again, all that came out of verse 35 of Acts 22. When, G, when uh, 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 the Father basically says, listen, I'm going to make your enemies your footstool. And that's going to take place uh, during the Millennial Kingdom when that gets kicked in. All right, we're getting close. Uh, verse 36, Acts 2. And move this forward. All right. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you what? All right, so that's, again, that's a big part of the anti-Semitism. Uh, again, with all due respect to Martin Luther, who actually finally figured it out that we're saved by faith and not by uh, works, even though he had a lot of his doctrine never got straightened out while he was alive. Uh, but he did get this. And he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know surely that 
God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. This is why Luther hated the Jewish people. He believed they killed Jesus, and therefore they rejected. Luther was, and Calvin, by the way, too, were proponents of replacement theology, meaning the church replaced Israel because of verses like this that basically placed the onus on the Jewish people. But of course, as we already determined, not only the Jewish people, but the Romans, every single one of us had a part in the death of Christ. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Folks, when, when you came to Jesus Christ, and hopefully you can remember that day. If you can't remember it, you might want to consider uh, uh, dealing with that today. But if you remember back to the day you got saved, and you remember back then, the day when all of a sudden it became obvious to, to you that you were a sinner, you were lost, and that you needed Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. I hope you can remember that day. If not, um, see me. But bottom line, he says, uh, 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 what? You crucified him. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. What happened right before he got saved? Well, the Holy Spirit starts to work on you. Sometimes it's emotional, sometimes not, but all of a sudden the Holy Spirit begins to work on you, and it was working on the people right here in Jerusalem, the Jewish people, and it's like, man, this is bad. They were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, and now they got their attention. They're basically crying out like the Philippian jailer, Sirs, what must we do to be saved? Men and brethren, what shall we do? And here it comes. Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized on the name of Jesus Christ. And now here's where that, that, that problem verse comes in, and that's why we're going to spend the rest of the night on this. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What's the next word in your Bible? Three-letter word. Four. The remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right. Now, this passage, and uh, again, there's a very easy explanation for it because the Greek word ace, E-I-S, can be translated several different ways, including because of, on account of, or for. Now, the translators chose to use the word for. Now, if I asked you to give the gospel to me, how do I go to heaven if I die? How many of you would state, I have to be baptized in order to go to heaven? I hope nobody, because that's, that's a, a false doctrine. Uh, we know from many, many different passages, you're saved by what? You're saved by faith, by grace. It's free gift. So what I want to do now is we're going to take you back, and we're going to start to walk through what took place historically. All right, now... Most of you should be able to recognize this because at least you can see one of the domes sitting up there. It happens to be the Dome of the Al-Aqsa Mosque sticking up there. Where is the Al-Aqsa Mosque is by what other main building and not that far away from it? The Dome of the what? The Dome of the Rock. Where is that located? What, what city? Jerusalem. All right, so the Dome of the Rock sits in the middle of the Temple Mount platform the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which you're basically seeing the dome of, is just, uh, I don't know how many yards away, but it's on the Temple Mount. What I'm showing you here is the southern wall of the Temple Mount. You say, well, okay, that's uh, cool, I guess. Why, why are we showing that to you? Well, before priests 
could go up onto the Temple Mount. Maybe you, maybe you know it, maybe you don't. What did priests have to do? What did people have to do? What did the Jewish people have to do before they were allowed to go up towards the temple? They had to clean up. They had to be ceremonially clean. This is what's known as a mikvah. A mikvah is basically the place where, and, and they're located. Now, this isn't one that's located. It just happens to be a better looking one. This, uh, but the mikvahs are actually located right outside the temple walls where the ceremonial cleansing had to take place before someone went up. Now, that's extremely important. What does that kind of look like? What's, what's, have you ever gone up on a stage and looked into the baptismal tank? If you haven't, do it afterwards. Don't lean over and fall in, but uh, uh, you can go up the... St- don't go trying to lean over the stairs. It's a long way down. But if you go up uh, the stairs on the side there, you can look in. It almost is identical to what you're seeing in that picture there. What was the purpose of the mikvah? Again, was to ceremonially cleanse someone before they were allowed up on the temple. So when we go back to the Old Testament times, this was an extremely important part of, if you will, the ceremonially ceremonial cleansing of people before they were allowed up on the Temple Mount. Now here we have a picture of an Orthodox Jewish man, and this is outside of uh, the Western Wall or the Temple uh, Square, which of course uh, uh, the, the Western Wall, y'all, you can. Eh, you can't really see it in the picture. The Western Wall is where the Jewish people, visitors come, and they do what? They pray and are doing what? They're rocking back and forth and praying for the third temple to be built. Before the Jewish Orthodox people can go forward to that wall on the outside of the temple mount, they must be ceremonially clean. So as you see, and you see those silver pitchers there, uh, they literally pick them up. It's, it's all ceremonial. They, they pour the water over their hands to ceremonially get clean. I've told this uh, uh, in the past. I think I told it maybe in Sunday school last week. When uh, I go to eat at a Orthodox Jewish home before we are allowed to basically, first got to be quiet. They won't let you say a word. I don't know where they get that from, but you can't talk. And you have to go up to the sink and you have to do the pitcher thing to be ceremonially clean before you can come to the table. Then they cut some bread traditionally and uh, then after the cutting of the bread, then you can talk. That's their way of doing business. But the ceremonial washing, that comes out of uh, of the Old Testament, but they've upped the ante in the Mishnah and the Talmud by making them do what you see here. So again, why why am I showing you this? Because we're going back into Old Testament Jewish times, which are still being practiced by the Orthodox Jews, and before you went to the place of the temple, where, of course, in the day, who was up in the temple in the Holy of Holies? The Shekinah glory of God, all right? I mean, you had to be clean. The priests had to be clean. Now, were they taking soap and water and actually having a bath? The answer is no, but it was a ritual cleansing. But more importantly, they had to go into the mikvah and literally, I mean, submerge themselves. Oh, did I say submerge? 
What does that sound like when we do baptism? Immersion, right? Do we baptize by sprinkling or pouring? No, we baptize by what? Immersion. That's why we have a tank behind me that looks almost identical. Of course, uh, not made of the same materials, but there is a relationship here which I want us to get to. All right, so, oops, there we go. All right, so let's go to Exodus chapter 30, verse 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for what? Washing, ceremonial cleansing before the individuals could go up. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. All right, now, again, the mikvah is not ever discussed in the Old Testament, but was it done? Absolutely. Why? Because the Jewish people instituted it through their, if you will, extra-biblical commentaries and desires. Now, what's going to happen? Aaron, by the way, who was Aaron's brother? Moses of the tribe of Levi. For Aaron, who is the head of the priests out of the tribe of Levi, and his sons shall do what? Wash their hands and their feet and water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall, here it is again, wash with water, ceremonially cleansing, lest they what? They die. All right, God wasn't messing around here. It's like, this. you better do this or you better stay off the temple. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die and it shall be a statute forever to them to him and his descendants throughout their generations. All right, let's go to Matthew on, the, on a New Testament look at this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to who? Which, yeah, John the who? He's coming up to John the Baptist. Now, wait a second. We started out in the Old Testament. We started about going up on the Temple Mount. You had to be ceremonially clean by being washed. All right, so there's a pattern that we're going to see. So Jesus comes from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now what does he mean by that? What does he have to fulfill? Did Jesus have to repent of his sins and be baptized? Did he have any sin? Absolutely not. All right. So what is he talking about that this must be done to fulfill all righteousness? Hmm. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, John says, Here's why I came baptizing with water, because what was his what was John doing? Well, why did he do what he did? What was he baptizing people for? The preparation of the coming of whom? It was coming of Jesus. All right. So now we're taking a Jewish bunch of people that are, they understood the washings and the ceremony cleansing and all that. Now we have a literal baptism taking place. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's saying, listen, and, and this becomes extremely important. And there's, there, you're going to see, and some people confuse this, there's more than one baptism, there's more than one water baptism in Scripture. 
This baptism was pre-death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, which was to prepare people for his coming. All right? This was not the baptism that we practice up here. It was different, and we'll prove that. All right, this is he of, of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me, that therefore this is exactly why I'm baptizing with water. And let's see here. I don't know if I put this up here. I don't think I did. All right. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he that sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes. Now we're talking about a totally different kind of baptism. What is Jesus going to baptize with? Holy Spirit. So now we're talking about spirit baptism. Totally different subject. Um, we already, yeah, we did Leviticus 16, I believe. Uh, I can't remember. Did I talk about Leviticus 16? No. All right. Uh, take your Bibles. Go to Leviticus 16 very quickly. I missed this one. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of uh, the two sons of Aaron, and they offered profane fire before the Lord. In other words, they were, weren't found the Levitical law. I mean, Leviticus 16. Uh, after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered profane fire before the Lord died, and the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at just any time in the holy place inside the veil. We're talking about going into the temple, into the holy of holies, where the what glory of God was? It's the kind of glory of God was. All right? He says, You just don't walk in there. It has to be at the specific times I tell you. All right? So you go before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, the ark of the covenant, lest he die, for it will appear in the cloud above the mercy seat. Now, again, if you remember the Ark of the Covenant, kind of looked like a square box, two angel cherubim uh, carved out, sat on the top of it, facing each other, and uh, there's the veil outside. So it would be like if uh, pretending this is the temple, uh, the big veil would be up here. There'd be another section uh, before the veil, but you did not go past the veil where the Holy of Holies was. And again, by no means am I saying this is the Holy of Holies up here just as an illustration. Now, what's to happen? Verse 4, here's the preparation. And we're talking about Aaron. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban. He shall be attired. These are holy gar garments. Therefore, he shall do what? He's going to wash his body in water and put them on. All right? So the purpose of that is when a priest came into the Holy of Holies, he had to be what? Ceremonially clean. The high priest had to be ceremonially clean. Jesus comes in the River Jordan, no sin, no reason to be baptized for the repentance of sins. Was Jesus our high priest? Or is our high priest? Where did he enter into? Figuratively speaking, it wasn't literally the Holy of Holies of the temple, but did he enter the Holy of Holies in heaven? Hmm, just a thought. All right, so in John bore witness saying, uh, verse 32, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove upon him. I know I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And of course, back in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what took place. Uh, on the day of Pentecost. All right, let's go to, 
I'm out of sequence here. Matthew chapter 3. All right, when he had been baptized, speaking of Christ, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, if you read the commentaries, you're going to come up with about 50 different explanations of why Jesus was baptized. Um, 50 is probably a little few too many. So what, why did he do it? All right, number one, John was preparing people for Christ. Well, he is the Christ. Why did he do it? Well, uh, the, the most common answer that you hear, why did Jesus do it? Who is he identifying with at the time? Who did Jesus identify with? Well, it was the Jewish people, those who had come to be baptized. So there's, he's literally coming in a human form, even though he had no sin, and identifying with the people. So he's fulfilling that which John had come to do and what Jesus also did. Now, is this believer's baptism? Don't answer yet if you're going to say no, because this is not believer's baptism. This was the baptism in preparation for the coming of Christ. And we're going to prove that in just a minute, and I'm going to have to get moving here. All right, 1 Peter. This is one of the confusing passages that I'm going to hit on very quickly. Uh, I, I met with some folks the other day, and uh, uh, they came out of a, a Lutheran background, and they're like, well, uh, how do you deal with this? It appears that you're saved by being baptized. Well, if you go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 37, he that believeth and is baptized, well, basically they're going to be saved. On for what? For the remission of sins. No, on account of the remission of sins. Nobody's baptized and goes to heaven because they've been baptized. First Peter, here's the other confusing passage. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. All right, you're like, well, what does this have to do with baptism? Hang on. Verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. By the way, who's in prison that Jesus went down and talked and, and basically preached to? We go back to Genesis, who's been kept reserved in uh, basically the abyss until the final judgment? Who's there? The what? Yeah, fallen angels, right on. Verse 20, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. So who was thrown into the abyss well, it was those evil angels, and we won't get into all that tonight. Uh, that's a whole other study. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved, what? Through water. The people that were in the ark, did they go into the water physically? What did the ark do? It, it protected them from the flood. What happened to the potentially hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of people that were not safely in the ark? What happened to them? They drowned. Okay, God, God took their life. Now, God's going to use that as an illustration, and the word that's going to be used has caused a tremendous amount of confusion. Verse 21. There is also an antitype, in other words, a symbolic act that, that corresponds with this, which now saves us, saves us. When I say saved, are you saved? We're talking about what? Saved from our sins, saved from the penalty of sin. We're talking about salvation here. What saves us? And what's the next word? Baptism. Baptism. It's like, whoa, wait a second. 
That's not what we teach here at Union Grove Baptist Church and 90% of the Christian churches around the country or the world. What do you mean baptism now saves us? Well, we need to understand what the Word is saying in the context. Does baptism always refer to water baptism? The answer is no. We know 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks about spirit baptism that takes place when you place your faith and trust in Christ. Yes, there are water baptisms, the one that the Apostle John did, the one that we practice here, known as Christian baptism. This baptism is not referring to water baptism. It's referring to what was just talked about in context when you are placed into Christ. You are immersed into Christ. It has nothing to do with water whatsoever, but there are churches, denominational churches, that take this passage and say, well, it's obvious because baptism always refers to water baptism. Wrong. Uh, that this is about you got to be baptized to be saved. Wrong. If, it, if we need to be baptized to be saved, well, uh, I hope everybody's been in the water because if you, get, you trusted Christ and never got baptized, you got a problem according to this passage. Well, fortunately, that's not what it's saying. There's also an antitype which now says is baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. So when we go back in context, verse 18, who's it talking about? It's talking about what Jesus Christ did for you. What did you do when the eight souls entered into the ark? They didn't go underwater. They were out of the water. So it has nothing to do with water baptism. It has to do with being in Christ. It has to be doing, if you will, anti-type. You are in the ark of whom? Jesus Christ. And that's how you're saved. So very quickly we hit that. Man, I'm going to run out of time again. All right, Acts uh, chapter 18. I want to hit this very quick. And if you knew all that, I'm skipping. All right. No, I'm not skipping anything. Anyway, Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now, a certain Jew, we've got to prove that John the Baptist's baptism was not the baptism we practice, so we got to do that. Now, a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria, an eloquent man, mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. Is that a problem? Yes, verse 26. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside. That's a nice way to uh, teach somebody. Don't embarrass them in public. Take them aside and, and teach them. Good leadership principle. Aquila and Priscilla took him uh, aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. In other words, he hadn't progressed to the point where he understood, if you will, uh, the theology that had developed or what actually took place after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So he was still practicing the baptism, getting ready for Christ. And they're like, hey, guy, uh, you're a little behind the times here. Uh, there's another baptism. We're going to prove it. Verse 28. For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. So he's still doing the baptism of repentance, basically getting ready for the coming of Christ, but that had already taken place. All right, Acts 2. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brother, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ because of or on account of the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right. Uh, let's see. 
Go to Acts chapter 19. Turn in your Bibles there. I don't have it up on the screen. Acts chapter 19. Okay, now Acts chapter 18, remember, they just tune up Apollos on this baptism issue, and you say, well, can you prove it a little bit stronger? Okay, glad you asked. Acts 19 verse 1. Next part of the, right after Acts here, uh, 18. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Verse 4 of Acts 19, then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. Here it comes, verse 5. When they heard this, they were what? They were baptized by water in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then the next section is the Holy Spirit comes on them. So you, you what's the point here? The point is washings took place in the Old Testament, ceremonial cleansing. We don't have, uh, and I, I know there's tremendous confusion on this. Some people say, well, you know, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, therefore we should follow Jesus in baptism. I mean, that, that's an argument, but it's really not a good one. Because what was taking place when John the Baptist was baptizing was not the same thing that we practice today, which is baptism as a sign of what took place when you trusted Christ. That's why these people took Apollos aside and say, are you still practicing John's baptism for repentance for the coming of Christ? Uh, let's get into uh, post-resurrection, my friend, and uh, start baptizing people after they've trusted Christ. And that's why we baptize people today. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so a lot, of, a lot of you are saying, I'm not sure, <laughs> which is fine. Uh, but when you go through this, and I know I've gone through it somewhat, even though I try to be slow, uh, it probably comes out fast. And to some of you, this is brand new material you've never heard before. But when you look at it, when you study it, when you see the different things that we've gone through, and by the way, this is all on the Internet. If uh, you truly are confused, take some time, replay it. Those, the verses are there. It'll make it perfectly clear. This coming Sunday, and I'm going to close with this because we are out of time, we're, we are going to step into the waters of baptism on Sunday morning. Uh, like I said, there are about six, seven different people that will be baptized. I think one can't make it this week. Why are we doing it? Every single one that's going to enter into the waters of baptism here, the first thing that's going to happen before I will baptize them is, and if you've been here, you know what I'm, what's going to happen. They're going to share their testimony of when they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All right? We're not baptizing them, preparing them for the coming of Christ. The baptism is basically what's practiced here. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, uh, think about him. He, uh, 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 Philip preaches Jesus to him, and Philip says, hey, can I be baptized? And he says, do you believe with all your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord? He says, I absolutely do. He's like, hop down, let's baptize you. The Philippian jailer uh, 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 is in jail. All of a sudden, a, a horrible earthquake happens. The jailer's about ready to kill himself, and he comes out as basically a spiritual moment, and he says, listen, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. In fact, anybody in your household that'll trust Christ uh, can be saved by placing their faith and 
trust in him. We go, the Philippian jailer takes uh, uh, Paul and Silas to his home. They clean him up. They preach Jesus to the household. And what takes place? They believe on him. And what's the next step? Well, they all get baptized afterwards. So it's a natural progression of the Christian faith. You trust in Christ. The next thing, why do we baptize? Because we want to tell others what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's the whole reason. So we uh, we trust Christ, then we go into, if you will, the tank of water. Why? Not because we're going to be ceremonially clean or we need to take a bath. It's saying, listen, when I get into that tank, we'll shut down with this. When the people stand up in the tank, they say, listen, I've trusted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And then this represents the person. And I say, well, uh, 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 rich, based on your profession of faith in Jesus Christ, I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, amen, buried in the likeness of his death, in the likeness, not for, in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. And the people clap and they shout and get happy. Uh, why? Because uh, uh, that person had placed their faith and trust in Christ and now uh, they're going to that second step and uh, having baptism. So uh, it's going to be a great Sunday. I hope this made sense. Again, if it doesn't, uh, get, the, get the tape. It's free on the internet, myugbc.com, sermonaudio.com. The videos are up. And uh, play it again. If you have questions, I'm always available. Well, not always, but most of the time. All right, fair enough. Let's pray and uh, get your kitties. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for these folks that uh, uh, went through this study this evening. Father, I know that uh, to some folks, some of this is new material, uh, never been maybe explained quite the, uh, the way some have heard it. To others, it's old hat. But Lord, I pray that uh, we would indeed continue to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen and workwomen that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing, rightly handling your word of truth. Father, I pray you dismiss us with your blessing. Uh, bless the Iwana and uh, rooted teens as they close down and uh, present uh, the final challenge to the young people. Lord, what you do in their hearts, what only you can do. Thank you for those that were saved last week and put their faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, we rejoice in that. Thank you for those that will be baptized this coming week as they profess their faith in Christ and uh, give that public display of what happened in their heart. So, Lord, it's been a great couple of weeks. We look forward to continue, continually seeing what you'll do right here and, of course, churches of like mind all across the world. We thank you for them. And, Lord, uh, again, dismiss us with your blessing. Now we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thanks, folks. Have a great night.